Today I'll be reading the opinion of the court in United States XREL Polanski v. Executive Health Resources, Inc. Justice Kagan delivered the opinion of the court in which Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Alito, Sotomayor, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Barrett, and Jackson joined. Justice Kavanaugh filed a concurring opinion in which Justice Barrett joined. Justice Thomas filed a dissenting opinion. The False Claims Act, or FCA, imposes civil liability on any person who presents false or fraudulent claims for payment to the federal government. The statute is unusual in authorizing private parties, known as relators, to sue on the government's behalf. When a relator files a complaint, the government gets an initial opportunity to intervene in the case. If the government does so, it takes the lead role. If not, that responsibility falls to the relator, the only person then pressing the suit. But even when that is so, the government retains certain rights, including the right to intervene later upon a showing of good cause. The questions presented here concern the government's ability to dismiss an FCA suit over a relator's objection. Everyone agrees that if the government intervenes at the suit's start, it can later move to dismiss. But the parties dispute whether, or in what circumstances, the same is true if the government declines its initial chance to intervene. And the parties disagree as well about the standard district courts should use in deciding whether to grant a government motion to dismiss. Today we hold that the government may seek dismissal of an FCA action over a relator's objection so long as it intervened sometime in the litigation, whether at the outset or afterward. We also hold that in handling such a motion, district courts should apply the rule generally governing voluntary dismissal of suits, Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 41A. Part 1. Section A. The FCA dates to the Civil War, when a congressional committee uncovered stupendous abuses in the sale of provisions and munitions to the War Department. Testimony before Congress painted a sordid picture of how the United States had been billed for non-existent or worthless goods, charged exorbitant prices for goods delivered, and generally robbed in purchasing the necessities of war. To put a stop to the plunder, and more generally to protect the funds and property of the government, Congress enacted the FCA. The Act, then as now, imposed civil liability for many deceptive practices meant to appropriate government assets. From the start, the FCA has been enforced through a unique public-private scheme. Federal prosecutors may, of course, sue an alleged violator all on their own. But private parties, again, relators, may also sue in so-called QI-TAM actions. Those suits are brought in the name of the government, and the injury they assert is exclusively to the government. A QI-TAM suit 
this court has explained, alleges both an injury to the government's sovereignty arising from violation of its laws and an injury to its proprietary interests resulting from a fraud. But in one important sense, a Ketam suit is, as the statute puts it, for both the relator and the government. The FCA, we have explained, affects a partial assignment of the government's own damages claim. If the action leads to a recovery, the relator may receive up to 30% of the total. Because the relator is no ordinary civil plaintiff, he is immediately subject to special restrictions. He must file his complaint under seal and serve both a copy and supporting material evidence on the government alone. The government then has 60 days, often extended for good cause, to decide whether to intervene and proceed with the action. If the government, during that so-called seal period, elects to intervene, the relator loses control. The action then shall be conducted by the government, though the relator can continue as a party in a secondary role. Only if the government passes on intervention does the relator have the right to conduct the action. And even then, the relator is not home free. The government, after all, is a real party in interest in a KETAM action. So Congress gave the government continuing rights in the action, not least the right to the lion's share of the recovery. Most relevant here, the government can intervene after the seal period ends, so long as it shows good cause to do so. The main issue here is whether the government, if it has declined to intervene during the seal period, retains yet another right, the right to dismiss a KETAM action over the relator's objection. The FCA gives the government unilateral authority to dismiss in at least some circumstances. Section 3730C2A which we'll call subparagraph 2A for short, provides that the government may dismiss the action notwithstanding the objections of the relator so long as the relator has received notice of the motion and an opportunity for a hearing. Nothing in the statute, however, expressly states whether or when that authority survives the government's decision to let the seal period lapse without intervening. The competing arguments on that score hinge significantly on surrounding provisions, more precisely on how subparagraph 2a fits into the rest of section 3730c. That subsection addresses the rights of the parties, the government, the relator, and more briefly, the defendant. It contains four relevant paragraphs which we summarize in order. A helpful hint to start with, you might want to pay attention to what each paragraph says, or not, about when it applies. Paragraph 1 applies, as its first clause states, if the government proceeds with the action. In that event, the government shall have the primary responsibility for prosecuting the action and shall not be bound by an act of the relator. The relator still can continue as a party file motions, conduct discovery, and so forth, 
but only subject to the limitations set forth in paragraph 2. Paragraph 2 then spells out certain rights of the government. You have already seen subparagraph 2a, enabling the government to dismiss an action over the relator's objection after notice and opportunity for a hearing. Subparagraph 2b is similar. It allows the government to settle an action notwithstanding the relator's objections so long as the court finds after a hearing that the settlement is fair and reasonable. Finally, subparagraphs 2c and 2d allow the court to limit the relator's participation in the case because, among other reasons, it would interfere with the government's prosecution of the case or cause the defendant undue burden. Next, paragraph 3 applies, as its first clause states, if the government elects not to proceed with the action. In that event, the relator shall have the right to conduct the action. But a caveat immediately follows. The government, as noted above, may intervene at a later date, i.e., after the seal period, upon a showing of good cause. And last, there is a caveat to that caveat. In granting a later intervention motion, the court may not limit the status and rights of the relator. Finally, paragraph 4 applies, as its first clause states, whether or not the government proceeds with the action. That provision enables the government to obtain a stay of the relator's discovery if it would interfere with the government's investigation or prosecution of a related legal matter. And so to recap, focusing on the matter we suggested you attend to, paragraph 1 applies if the government proceeds with the action. Paragraph 3 applies if the government elects not to proceed with the action. Paragraph 4 applies whether or not the government proceeds with the action. And paragraph 2? It is not like the others. Though granting the government important rights, including the right to dismissal over the relator's objection, paragraph 2 does not specify when it applies. And that is the mystery at this case's heart. Section B. With the game thus afoot, we turn to the facts, though there are only a few you need to know. Petitioner Jesse Polanski is a doctor who worked for Respondent Executive Health Resources, or EHR, a company that helped hospitals bill the United States for Medicare-covered services. In 2012, Polanski filed, under seal as required, a KETAM action against EHR. The complaint alleged that EHR was enabling its clients to cheat the government, essentially by charging inpatient rates for what should have been outpatient services. After reviewing Polanski's evidence, the government declined to intervene during the seal period. The case then spent years in discovery, with EHR demanding both documents and deposition testimony from the government. As its discovery obligations mounted and weighty privilege issues emerged, the government assessed and reassessed whether the suit should go forward. By 2019, it had decided that the varied burdens of the suit outweighed its potential value. 
The government therefore filed a motion under subparagraph 2A to dismiss the action over Polanski's objection. The district court granted the request, finding that the government had thoroughly investigated the costs and benefits of allowing Polanski's case to proceed and had come to a valid conclusion based on the results of its investigation. The Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit affirmed after considering two legal questions. First, does the government have authority to dismiss an action under subparagraph 2A if it declined to intervene during the seal period? The Court of Appeals held that the government has that power so long as it intervened sometime later. And here, the Third Circuit found the government had satisfied that condition because its motion to dismiss was reasonably construed to include a motion to intervene, which the district court had implicitly granted. Second, what standard should a district court use in ruling on a subparagraph 2A motion to dismiss? The Court of Appeals held that the proper standard comes from Federal Rule 41A, the rule governing voluntary dismissals in ordinary civil litigation. And here, the Third Circuit ruled, the district court's decision, which was based on a thorough examination of the interest that Rule 41 makes relevant, was not an abuse of discretion. Because both those questions have occasioned circuit splits, we granted certiorari. We now affirm the Third Circuit across the board. We've come to the end of part one of this opinion, but don't worry, next episode we will pick up exactly where this episode left off. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.